Church. Uh, my name is Josh Cuellar, if you don't know me, and I am the next-gen pastor here. That means I get to work with college students and young adults, as well as our worship hour, serving hour teams, and occasionally I get to preach. And this is one of those days, so I'm sorry. No, just kidding. It's going to be great. I'm so grateful. This is honestly one of the joys of my job. I really do enjoy bringing the Word of God and teaching, so I appreciate you allowing me to do that. And when we think of the greatest speeches ever given in the world, maybe even if we just limit it to our country, we may think of um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. We may think of President Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address, or maybe movies are more your speed, and you can think of a movie that just has a great speech in it. Maybe it was a war movie and a general needed to just rally the troops and encourage them for what was about to happen. Maybe it was a sports movie and the coach needed to encourage the team to go win in the second half. Whatever it might be, great speeches just have this power over us to elicit emotion and response. So we're going to look at the greatest speech probably ever given, and that's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And a sermon is a little different than a speech. It's not just a speech. It's not a lecture. It's not a TED Talk. A sermon is a revealing of God's word to his people, and it, we need to respond to it in obedience, an appropriate response. And so, so we're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to do a little contextual work, I'll give a little background, because I think that's helpful, especially when we come to a familiar passage like the Beatitudes, right? If you've been around church for any amount of time, chances are you've heard a lot of teachings on this. You may have even studied it yourself. You may feel very familiar with this. And that saying uh, is true. Familiarity sometimes breeds contempt. And so we need to push back against that whenever we come to a familiar passage of the Bible and try to, try to really see what God is going to teach us. And so a little context to this. Jesus is at the height of his public ministry. He has been healing. He has been teaching. He has been um, just rolling in Galilee. And he then steps aside into the mountains, what we translate mountains. Really, it was hill country. And, and then he sits down and he teaches his disciples. And disciples there um, doesn't necessarily mean that they were committed followers of Jesus, but they were just interested in learning and gaining a little bit more about what this Jesus guy was, what he was teaching. And so Jesus pulled them and he set them down. And this was pretty common that rabbis in the day, Jewish rabbis, would teach. They would stand and teach in the synagogues, but then sometimes they would go and take a small crowd and they would sit down and kind of expand on that teaching. And here's Jesus doing that. And what he's going to do for his original hearers and for us here today is he's going to make a character sketch of who is in the kingdom of God. If you want to know what a person who is in the kingdom of heaven looks like, or, or in our language, what a Christian looks like, this is what it's going to be. Jesus is going to lay that out for us. And as I was thinking of character sketches, I'm a college pastor, so this helps me understand it. If I were to make a character sketch of an NMSU Aggie, which is our university here, if you're unfamiliar. An NMSU Aggie would be brave. They'd be intellectual. They would be good-looking. They would be awesome at what they do, right? If I were to make a character sketch of a UNM Lobo, they would be kind of skeevy and sketchy, and um, you just don't want to interact with that kind of people. If I were to go then to NMSU's campus, what kind of person could I expect to find on NMSU's campus and UNM's campus? This is what Jesus is doing. What kind of person can we expect to find in the kingdom of heaven? He is also going to present an ethic or a way of life that is really, honestly, very hard for us to live up to, if we're honest. Like, 
If you're like me, sometimes I read passages like this, especially lists, and it, I make it like a checklist. It's like, oh, I'm really good at verses two, four, and five. I struggle with one, and I struggle with six, but you know, overall, I'm pretty good. But that is not the point of the Beatitudes. The point of the Beatitudes is to show us what kind of person is already in God's family. So we're going to be looking at that. And the form of Beatitudes is actually found elsewhere in the scriptures. Actually, Psalms 1 it has the form of a Beatitude, blessed are those who dot, 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 whatever. So Jesus didn't invent this, but this is the largest collection of Beatitudes we have in the scriptures. So a Beatitude starts with blessed, and then it'll go on to say something else. So for example, the first one we're going to look at is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we need to understand a little bit of what blessing means when we come to the Christian scriptures. Because we normally think of bless or blessed blessing one of two ways. And if you spent any time in the southern states in America, you probably know what I'm about to say. Bless your heart. Right. And that's kind of like a little sarcastic. It's a little cutting. It's like when someone's acting foolish and you just know, like if I were to get up here and try to lead us in music like Scott did, he did an awesome job. If I tried to do that, he'd, oh, bless his heart. He's just not good at that. He, does, he has no reason doing that. So that's kind of one of the ways we think of blessing. Bless your heart. Another reason, another way we think of blessing is when someone sneezes, we say, God bless you, right? And especially now in 2020 with the pandemic, we say, really, you need God's blessing, or maybe God bless me, and I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to stay away from you, but whatever it is, those are two of the ways we think of blessing. This is a totally different way to think of blessing. When the Bible talks about blessing, it really has to do with our state of being in relation to God, and more specifically, in the Beatitudes, are like being a part of his kingdom. And the word we translate blessing in the English standard, which I'm preaching from, in a lot of those translations. Um, it's sometimes translated happy, but as we'll see, happy falls so short of what it actually means. Um, when we come to a verse like, blessed are those who mourn, happy are those who mourn, that just doesn't make sense, especially in our, our modern English use of happy. Um, sometimes it's translated fortunate, but more often than not, it's translated blessed. And the idea behind that is more of an exclamation. It's more of a commendation. It's like, it's more akin to our word congratulations than it is to happy. So Jesus is saying, if you are in the kingdom of God, you are this type of person, and congratulations if that is you. You are blessed. So it describes more than an inner state of feeling, which is typically what we think of happiness being. I'm happy, I feel happy. Over Thanksgiving, I had a full stomach and I was happy. And um, it's a little bit more than that. It's, it's more of a state of being who we are objectively, right, from the outside in. So Jesus is going to teach this for us. And the Beatitudes are really an entry point into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, um, that is really, if you were to take it and wring it out and distill it into one single teaching, it would be a teaching on the kingdom of God. And um, really, we could pinpoint one verse even in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 6, 33. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So I want us to see, even in the Beatitudes, they're encapped by this teaching. In the first Beatitude, it's the poor in spirit who in, are in the kingdom of heaven. And in the last, it's the persecuted who are in the kingdom of heaven. This is through and through, all through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is this teaching on the kingdom of heaven. So 
I think it's best for us to take it verse by verse. So that's what I'm going to do is take it verse by verse and explain a little bit about what it means because there's some familiar terms. There's some terms we don't really use. And then what I'll do at the end is kind of wrap it all together for us in a concluding statement. So we're going to walk verse by verse. So verse 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The idea here of poor is not just financially like destitute, although it can mean that, um, but when it's, it's attached to that poor in spirit, that's where we get its true meaning. The idea is, is behind poor is those who don't know where the next meal might come from. They're needy. They're maybe even perhaps desperate. But we are poor and desperate in spirit, Jesus teaches, and it's, that's the idea more behind um, what the great theologian pastor Jonathan Edwards says, uh, when we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. It's this idea of spiritual bankruptcy that you and I exist apart from Jesus Christ. We, have, we bring nothing to the table except the sin that makes salvation necessary. We are poor in spirit. So remember the context of blessed, congratulations. So Jesus is not saying that poverty is a good thing, though. We understand that, that it's not a good thing to not know where your next meal might come from, to be poor. Um, it's not a good thing, but rather our aim should be the humility that poverty sometimes fosters, right? We are poor in spirit. If we were to read through the characters that Jesus comes into contact with and that follow him through the Gospel of Matthew, it's not really the religious, pious, or elite, or, or those that seem to have it all together. More often than not, it's those who are, understand their spiritual bankruptcy, who are at the end of the rope. It's the tax collectors. It's the prostitutes. It's those who are just called sinners, more generally. And that's who is in the kingdom of heaven. So again, Jesus' whole sermon is focused on this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And in this passage, he encaps the Beatitudes. So he begins and he will end with the teaching on the kingdom of heaven. So let's move on. The next verse, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The idea of mourning, um, some scholars are kind of divided. And actually, scholars and theologians are often divided on what they mean. Some of them mean um, that there's a spiritual reality to these beatitudes, and some kind of take it more as a practical approach. So in this instance, some say that blessed are you if you mourn over your sin, um, that we understand our spiritual bankruptcy. Others kind of take it to mean more just a general mourning. Of, of just grief and of just difficulties, and, and we understand that. So the idea here, though, is both. Jesus is meaning to convey both, right? That, that yes, we mourn over our sin. If we're a Christian, that grieves us that we have participated in something that wrecks our relationship with God, it wrecks our relationship with others, and that grieves us. It should, at least. If it doesn't, we need to take serious account of uh, where we're at. But also, we understand that Jesus... If you're his, if you're in his kingdom, he is presently with you now by his spirit. So that when we go through the highs and lows of life, when we mourn over the loss, Jesus will comfort us now. And that comfort will ultimately be realized when his kingdom finally comes in a fully realized state. So in a year again, like 2020, we all have lost something. Maybe it was just the experience that you wanted to have, your expectation of what a year like 20, like it sounds cool, 2020, 2020 vision, yeah. And then it just didn't pan out that way, right? So we lost that expectation. But fortunately, even more so, some of us have lost jobs or loved ones this year. 
the hope we have in Jesus Christ, if you are his, is that he is presently with you and that he will comfort you. And that is where the congratulation comes. You will be comforted in your mourning. Jesus goes on and says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this idea of meekness is not an idea that we are very familiar with, at least if you're like me. Um, and we don't commonly call someone meek. Like if someone was walking next to me on the street and said, Josh, I think you're meek. I'd be like, what's that mean? I don't know what that means. I'm meek. So we need to unpack that a little bit. The idea of meekness, I think why we don't understand it very well is because it's not celebrated in our Western culture. It's just not, especially when it comes to leadership and those in charge. Meekness is just not something that we're very fond of. But here Jesus is teaching the meek are blessed because they shall inherit the earth. So the idea of meekness is absence from pretension. It is a humility, but more generally, it's also just a gentleness or self-control. Um, it's, a, it's a kindness. It's, it's kind of just the way we approach people and things and situations, meekness. I don't know if you'd realize that, but Paul would later on go write a letter to the Galatians where he would talk about fruit of the Spirit, and gentleness and self-control are fruit of the Spirit. If you and I were to take uh, five minutes and write down characteristics of a great leader in our Western culture, chances are meekness doesn't make our top 10. In fact, it might not even make our top 50 if we like compiled all of them. It's like gentleness, like self-control, like those don't typically foster an image of a great leader here in America. But here's Jesus saying, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I do want to clarify something that meekness or gentleness is not a softness, it's not a mushiness, especially when it comes to the truth of what we believe, the pillars of our faith. Like, we need to be staunch on those. We cannot budge on those. But Jesus still is clear. In the kingdom of God, it is the meek who inherit the earth. He'll go on and say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So we understand that idea of hunger and thirst. Actually, maybe right now you're feeling hungry. You're like, I should have grabbed that donut before I came in here. Or you're thirsty. That Man, that second cup of coffee sounded good. Uh, should have done that. So we don't need to explain that. But we do need to explain and understand this idea of righteousness. Because that's what we're supposed to hunger and thirst. It's not just that we desire things, but that we desire righteousness. And more specifically, the righteousness of God. And so again... Some of scholars are divided on this. Some believe it just means a personal righteousness in Jesus Christ, meaning I want to live the way that Jesus did in the way that he taught and showed us. Um, I want to pursue that because God says, be holy as I am holy. I want that. And others think that it just means more broadly, just a sense of justice and right living according to God. When we talk about justice, we gotta talk about God's justice. And so it's both of those, again, like, I want to encourage you to not say either or when Jesus is saying both and, right? When we hunger and thirst, we desire for that righteousness, that right living in my own life. I want to follow Jesus, but I also want to see his right way of living extended into the world. The theologian D.A. Carson says, These people who are in the kingdom of God, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, are not only hungry and thirsting that they may be righteous, but that justice may be done everywhere. This is why we grieve when we, as Christians, hear about injustices in the world. That's why we grieve 
about, um, unfortunately, things happening and stories of, of just murder or, or being killed or sickness or, or natural disaster, whatever it may be, that should grieve us. That should cause us to mourn as well. And the reason is, is because it's not the way it should be, right? We understand that sin has wrecked everything. It has wrecked my relationship with God. It has wrecked creation. And we experience the consequence and fallout of that sin. And that should cause in us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. We hunger and thirst for what we don't have. We realize that the world isn't the way it should be yet and that we want to be a part of making that a reality. And this, satis- this longing will be satisfied, rather, in Jesus Christ, in his kingdom. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The idea here is the one that Jesus expressed in a parable he told, which is a story that was going to explain a deeper truth. He told this story that, um, of a king who had a subject, and this subject owed this king a hundred lifetimes worth of debt. There's no way that this subject could ever repay the king. And the king brings that guy into his court, and he says, you know what, I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to forgive that debt. And what happened was that subject turned out of the king's court, and he saw a friend that owed him 10 bucks for the Chick-fil-A meal that he had the other day. And he's like, friend, and he grabs him by the scruff of the neck, and he says, you need to pay me that 10 bucks that you owe me. And the friend's like, I don't, I don't have it. That's why I need to borrow it in the first place. I don't have it. And then so that friend, the subject, threw that friend into jail. And Jesus' point in telling that parable is that, that those who have been shown mercy should be merciful. And this is Jesus' point in the Beatitude. Congratulations. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you've been shown forgiveness, we should be a forgiving people. And I realize that that is a process for a lot of us, maybe even a lifelong process, that it takes a effort and work on our part to forgive those who wrong us, um, to show mercy to people who don't deserve it. But you and I, if we're Christians in the kingdom of God, need to be in part of that process. We need to, to be in that process of showing mercy to others. Why? Because you and I have been shown great mercy. We have been shown so great mercy by God in Jesus Christ. In fact, in the words of Paul, he would say that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were actively rebelling and sinning against God, Christ came to die for us. And so, so that's the kind of mercy that we've been given. So what kind of mercy should we show others? All the more, right? So there's a connection between some of these beatitudes that, that those who mourn over their own personal sin, um, that's the idea of mourning, that you're blessed if you do that. The idea then of being merciful is, is our response to other people's sin. Mourning is our response to our own sin. Being merciful is our response to other people's sin. And sin, as I said before, wrecks everything. It just destroys and separates and just destroys. And so what's going to be our response to that if not mercy? We've been given much mercy. Jesus will say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Many scholars are divided, again, on what it means to be pure in heart. Some think it means to be, have this inward piety or righteousness, to, to follow in the way of Jesus. And others um, think it has to, more to do with a single-minded devotion on God. Remember, in the scriptures, the heart is not the seat of emotion, but it's the seat of decision. 
making. It's, it's more akin to like our mind or, or our will. And so when Jesus talks about purity in heart, it is both piety or, or an inward righteousness and a single-minded devotion. These are actually inseparable. When we have a single-minded devotion to honor God and get people to Jesus as fast as we can, which we talk about all the time here at this church, then we will have a desire to live a holy life following after Jesus. Because faith in Jesus is more than just an intellectual assent, it's a way of living. So, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Don't, don't buy into the false dichotomy of either or here. It is both inward righteousness and a single-minded devotion, a purity free from any contaminants that kind of plague us, that sin and weight that Hebrews talks about that entangle us and distract us from running the race set before us. The next beatitude is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Making peace or peacemaking is a central theme to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul writes in his letter to Colossians how Jesus has made peace with God on our behalf through his blood shed on the cross. We needed Jesus. You and I needed Jesus. Again, that spiritual poverty that we have. We are poor in spirit. We are impoverished people when it comes to spirituality. That we needed Jesus on our behalf to do what we couldn't do in his life, death, and resurrection to make peace with God for us. And so, since we have been recipients of that, we then need to be peacemakers in the world. It's the idea that Paul writes again when he says, you have been reconciled by God, now you have been given the ministry of reconciliation. How needed are peacemakers, again, in a year like 2020? And we're wrapping it up, and it's gonna, 2020 is going to roll into 2021, right? And we're gonna, we feel more divided than we have been in this nation, than probably in my lifetime for sure, in a very long time. There's just real things, issues that are dividing us, and if we're not careful, we Christians can play into that. But we're not called to be divisive. We're called to be peacemakers. And how do we do that? Again, it's not a mushiness. It's not a softness. But it is a preaching of the gospel and is making disciples, which is getting people to Jesus as fast as we can. And again, as Paul writes, as much as it is up to us, we need to live at peace with everyone. That means sometimes seeking relationship with people that think differently than us, and it seeks God's justice in the world. And as I said, there are some things that you and I can never make peace with. We should never make peace with sin in our life. Like, I don't ever want to be comfortable with the sin that is still in my life. And I don't ever want to become, make peace with the sin I see in the world. But when it comes to how we interact with people and those that maybe even think differently than us, I want to be a peacemaker. And that's difficult, again, and sometimes it takes a process. Again, I get that. It, and Jesus is not talking about an easy thing here. In fact, it's kind of more what um, the founder of this organization called Preemptive Love talks about when he says, wage peace. They go into war-torn countries and they try to educate and feed and ultimately disciple people in Jesus Christ. And, and they understand that people are waging war all around that. And when you wage war, you gather resource and you, you gather whatever it may be, funds or people or whatever for a cause, and you are devoted single-mindedly to that cause. You are waging war. 
But his idea is that we as Christians need to be waging peace. So that same idea kind of translates. We need to be gathering resource. We need to be single-mindedly devoted to seeking peace in our communities. So we are especially equipped as Christ followers who are in his kingdom to do this when we are meek, when we mourn sin in our own lives, and when we show mercy to others, when we realize our own spiritual poverty before the Lord. So Jesus wraps up his Beatitudes by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And remember, blessed can mean, it's kind of more akin to our English word congratulations. So is Jesus saying like congratulations if you're persecuted? Well, in a sense he is. Persecution for the Christian was a given. When Jesus is saying this, or rather when Matthew is pinning this gospel, um, persecution was mounting for the Christians, and it was just going to get worse. It has been a given for the Christ follower since Jesus came to earth. And it was throughout the Christian history. If, uh, I've, I'm in seminary, if you didn't know, and in seminary we take Christian theology and, and uh, Christian history, church history rather, and in church history I learned all about the just different ages of the church and of Christians and how they were persecuted really since the beginning. So any time we are free to do this, which is a good thing, don't get me wrong, it is a good thing. It is abnormal for the Christian to be able to gather freely to worship like this. The norm is persecution, all right? So we need to remember that. So as you follow Jesus, there will be people who are opposed to him and his gospel. It's, it's offensive. No one likes to hear that they're impoverished spiritually, that they don't have it all together, and, and these major themes of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is gonna be opposition to that. But remember that Jesus says, you're not blessed if you're persecuted for any reason, Right? Like sometimes I'm unfortunately just a jerk and people are like, like that's not persecution if you're just being a jerk towards people, like I am unfortunately sometimes. But if you are persecuted for righteousness sake, right living according to God, his gospel and the exemplifying life of Jesus Christ, then congratulations, you're in the kingdom of God. That's a, that's a mark of someone who is a Christian. And again, as I mentioned at the beginning, Jesus then concludes his enveloping statements, his beatitudes with, blessed are those, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven, a poor in spirit, and those who are persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he ends this, verses, the next couple of verses are actually kind of just more of an expansion on this beatitude. He kind of gives some examples of persecution uh, when you're reviled on behalf of Jesus Christ's um, sake, when, when people lie falsely, uh, about things that you didn't do. So persecution is the norm. What are we as Christ followers supposed to do then? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. And, and I hope you got to hear Brian's message last week. If you didn't, like, I would encourage you to look that up online because um, you did a great job. But that's, that's our response then as Christ followers is to rejoice and be glad when we face persecution. How could that be? I think there's a couple things that kind of help me understand this. One is that you're already in the kingdom of God. You've already experienced salvation in Christ. You are in his family. And, and um, 
This might not land, but all right. So if you want to get jumped into the gang, you have to do certain things to get jumped into that gang. And when you get jumped into that gang, that doesn't change forever. Maybe a better example um, would be adoption. When you get adopted, nothing can change that, right? You are that person's son. You are that person's daughter. They are your parents forever, right? And that's what happens when we join the kingdom of God. And that's something worth celebrating, even when we face persecution. And then he ends that this is, again, normal for the people of God. They persecuted the prophets that came before you, Jesus said. And as Jesus is saying this, the disciples hadn't faced a lot of persecution, but tradition and even the um, Acts, the book of Acts tells us that those apostles were going to face intense persecution. Blessed are you. So to kind of tie everything together, remember, this is a character sketch of someone who is already in the kingdom of God. This is not a roadmap to get into the kingdom of God. If you're like me, oftentimes I read a list like this, as I mentioned before, and I check off the ones that I'm good at, and I kind of like shrug off the ones I'm not so good at, and then, then I feel good about myself because I, the good outweighs the bad or something like that. But this is not the case with the Beatitudes. This is describing someone who is already, in our language, a Christian. So what do we do with this? One, we can hope in any circumstance. If you're Jesus's, he is with you, his spirit is with you now, in persecution, in mourning, in grief, in any situation. If you're not, if, if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christ follower today, then the encouragement, the, the call, the, the invitation even for you would be to do that now, to give your life to Jesus. And you can do that even now. As Pastor says, as you're sitting there, you can give your life to Jesus. If you'd like to, pray with someone. There's going to be some of us down front, but I would encourage you to do this because none of this really makes sense if you're out of the kingdom. This is for those who are in the kingdom of God, who are Christians. And so I would encourage you to do that, to give your life to Jesus Christ even now. Um, don't leave this place without doing that if you haven't done that. We'd love to explain a little bit more to you. So come down, pray with us, talk with us in a moment. But for those of us who are considered Christian, who would consider themselves a Christ follower, um, the encouragement then is to live this way, to seek this. And, and again, it's a process. It's, it's a work. The, we call it sanctification here in church. And if you're new to church, that might not mean a lot to you, but, but that's a process of becoming holy because God is holy and becoming more like Jesus. And that's a process. It takes time and it takes effort. Perhaps you need, want to come and pray with us and just kind of ask for prayer because you feel like you're not very meek or you feel like you're not very merciful, and maybe even an instance or a person is coming to mind, uh, come pray, pray with us about that. And also, if you're like me and you're checklisting this and you feel like you don't match up very well with this, take heart. There's hope for you because Jesus himself made himself poor by condescending and taking on human flesh. That's what we're looking towards at Christmas, which is just a few days away, and I'm really excited about it. And Jesus coming to earth in the form of a human. He made himself poor so that we could be rich in him. He understands mourning and grief. Jesus wept. You get that? Jesus wept. He understands it, and he is with you now if you are his, and he can comfort you. Jesus himself, again, was meek enough. He was gentle and self-controlled and humble enough to come to earth in the form of a man. 
Jesus died and rose again to make us right before God so that we could live lives of righteousness, so that we can hunger and thirst for that. Jesus extends mercy when we didn't deserve it. In fact, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was perfectly pure in heart, pure in holiness and pure in devotion to the Father. He's our perfect substitute. Jesus alone is our peace, making peace for us, um, making peace with God for us. And Jesus is acquainted with persecution and he will be with us. So Jesus is has ushered in his kingdom and he will bring that to full completion someday. And so that's my hope for you. That's the invitation. Will you pray with me now? God, I thank you for your word that you preserved it over these years um, in, in seeming impossible circumstances so that we could read it and not just gain head knowledge, but that we could have an interaction with you, the living God. My prayer is that we would um, not just come away with some facts about you, but that we would understand your revealed truth and that we would act accordingly to it. Thank you, God, for all you do for us and on our behalf. Thank you, and it's in Christ's name that we come before you. Amen.